Good morning, brothers and sisters and Bereans. Um, sorry I took off last week. Uh, my grandmother had passed away, and my dad asked me to do the eulogy. And I, you know, when I teach, I feel like I need to be able to give 100% focus on what I'm teaching when it has to do with God's Word. And um, that was something that I did not want to do half-focused and record half-focused. Um, and especially... What we're covering today, which is Revelation 2 and 3, I mean, this is a heavy, heavy load to be taking on all seven letters to the seven churches. Um, typically, I would want to break this down and teach each church in one lesson, but um, I don't have that luxury to do that because I'm on a timeline and a schedule with my church. So I usually teach on Wednesday nights at my church, and I record this later for those who either missed it or who are following along Um online. So anyways, today we're covering chapters two and three, the letters to the churches, probably the most important chapters in the book of Revelation for us because it pertains to us. It is right now. Jesus said, write the things that were, the things that are, and the things that shall be hereafter. The things that were was Revelation chapter one. The things that are is Revelation chapter two and three, the current time period, the church age. And then the things that shall be hereafter is from chapters four and on. So we are going to cover chapters two and three. And um, let me just tell you, it's a doozy. It is. And Every time I study this, like I feel like I've studied this so many times and I've read through it and I feel like I have a good grasp on it. And then the more I read it, the more I'm like, I, I have no idea. That sounds awful. I mean, I do have an idea, but I honestly have no idea how this is going to play out. And just when I think I understand it, God throws a wrench in the plan. And so anyways, Basically, if I was to teach this letter by letter in each lesson, I would talk about the four levels of meaning. Um, don't forget, if you don't have the the slides, shoot me a message so that you can follow along with, with me because it'll be easier for you to take notes if you have the slides in front of you. So there are four level, levels of meaning to each church. Number one, it they are all actual local churches. Um, they Each letter is addressed to an actual local church addressing real issues that that church was dealing with during that time. A lot of pastors will and scholars will say that this is where it ends, that that's all that the letters mean, that they were just historical documents, basically. Um, the more you study God's Word, the more that you tend to realize that his word is not just linear, that there's a lot of depth to it. And there are multiple layers of meaning to his word. So yes, I do think that they were local churches, but I also think number two, that they're admonitory. Remember in each letter, as it ends, it says, hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is plural. This means that all churches were reading each letter uh, all seven churches were reading all seven letters to each of the churches and also throughout history, the churches throughout history, we are to learn something from the issues that are being addressed in each of these churches. Okay. So there's an admonitory meaning to it. Number three, there's a homiletic meaning, which means that it's a personal meaning. Each letter applies to each of us. It says he who has an ear, let him hear. Each one of us need to be listening and applying to our lives what we're learning from these churches. And I guarantee you, 
We don't fit into just one category. We can take a couple teaspoons from one church, a couple tablespoons from another church and apply it in our lives. And I definitely want this to be a time of self-examination because we are nearing the end times. And I'm a, I have a, a couple concerns for us as a church body today throughout in America and nationwide or even in just a local church. Um, And then lastly, number four, the fourth level of meaning is that it's very prophetic. Each letter in this specific order applies prophetically to the churches throughout history and in the implied future. So I have a little bit of a mixed um, graph going on that talks about how each church can be just goes throughout history. The first church in Ephesus mirrors a church that was from 300 AD to 100 AD. Smyrna is from 100 to 312 AD. Pergamum is 312 to 606. Thyatira is from 606 to the tribulation church. So the last four churches seem to deal with us as a as a church today. Sardis, AD fifteen twenty two to tribulation. Philadelphia seventeen fifty to the rapture. It's the only church that is mentioned um, to possibly be raptured and not have to go through great tribulation. And then Laodicea, AD nineteen hundred to the tribulation period. And I'll let you look at that on your own because we are going to be covering in slide three. The most important key elements are seven key elements. Each letter is basically like a report card that Jesus is giving each one of them. He starts out, first off, there is a meaning to the name of the churches. Like, for example, the first one is Ephesus. Ephesus um, means the desired one. It literally means darling. And there is a tenderness that Jesus has with this church because of that. And so it reflects the church and its meaning. Um, Smyrna literally means myrrh or death, um, which is funny because, you know, that was one of the gifts that the wise men brought Jesus when he was born was myrrh. Like who gives him an embalming oil um, to the coming Messiah? But that was prophetic for his death that was to happen. So anyways, and Smyrna is the persecuted church, the church that will experience death. Um so there's, and there's multiple layers and meanings to it. Pergamum is mixed marriage. Thyatira is Semiramis, which means like wimp ruled by a woman. Um, also, Semiramis is the wife of Nimrod. Um, very interesting tie back there for those who have fallen down that trail before. Sardis means rem- remnant. Philadelphia means brotherly love. And Laodicea means people ruled or ruled by the people. Okay, so the There is a meaning to the name of the churches. Jesus gives himself a title in each letter and every title is different and every title is prophetic to what he's addressing in the book, which I think is very interesting. Um, Number three, he gives them a commendation, which means that he gives them like a good, a good grade, basically the things that they are doing well, not all churches get a commendation. Number four, there's criticism, Um, the things that they're not doing well. Not all churches get a criticism, but most of them do. Um, Then he gives them an exhortation, a promise to the conqueror, and then the last key phrase, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These are seven elements that each church has. Let's go through it again for those who are writing notes. There is a meaning to the name of the church, the title of Jesus. He gives them a commendation. He gives them a criticism. He gives them an exhortation. 
He gives them a promise to the conqueror or the overcomer, depending on what translation you're looking at. And then he ends with the key phrase, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Okay, so I basically wrote this out for y'all. I took up two different slides because I didn't want to make the, the writing too small. But I wanted to be able to fit it all so that you can, for those who are visual learners like me, um, you could see this. And so I'm just going to go through each church. I'm going to read through it, and then you can just follow through with the title, the commendation, and you can look at that on your own. Um, so we're starting with the Church of Ephesus. Okay. It says, To the angel of the Church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, that's obviously a key a foreshadow to what has already been mentioned, the seven stars being the angels of the churches that's held in his scar-stained right hand. And then he also walks among the golden lampstands, which is the churches. And so that's very interesting, I think, that he uses that type of analogy to where he's holding us in his dominant right strength hand, but he's also present with us walking in the church. Okay. Verse two, he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. And how true is that today? How many people are saying they have these prophetic dreams and we are so, we need to be very, very cautious when we listen to these types of things, um, because it could be false. Um, Verse three says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. Okay, so we have just covered the title of Jesus and the commendation. He gives them seven commendations. It's just another seven that's going to be amongst the hundreds of sevens that we cover in here. Um, Their works, their toil, their patient endurance, cannot bear with those who are evil, tested and discovered false apostles, bearing for his name's sake and not grown weary. But then he gives them a criticism, which to me just kind of wrecks my soul a little bit. He says, You have abandoned the love that you first had, and that is the love of Jesus. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Okay, so I don't know what your story is, but I know for me personally, when I was first saved, there was a zeal that you have when you're first saved where you can't do anything without thinking about Jesus. You can't, you're obsessed with soaking in everything that you could possibly soak in about Jesus. There is a hunger for this. You know, like when you first meet, I don't know if you're married or not, but when you first meet your husband and you start texting him or talking to him, you stay up. I remember my husband and I, we stayed up until six o'clock in the morning, just talking, um, before we married, obviously, and we were just talking the whole time about each other's families, about each other's life. You're just so obsessed with that person. That's what we are to be with Jesus. When we first got saved, when we first realized the salvation that we received from our Lord and Savior, that first love is what this church has abandoned. They're still doing things for him. Notice that they're still doing things. They're they're doing works. They're doing they're toiling. They're being patient. They're not bearing with those who are evil, but it's almost like they've gotten distracted by by the works and by the doctrine and have forgotten the faith that is what keeps everything so ripe, the fruits of their salvation. Um, 
So he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. So this is something that they must repent of, this love that they've lost, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So this is very, very interesting. I have a theory. I've been wrestling with this for a few years, and this is just my theory. Um, I haven't looked to see if anybody else agrees with it because there's so much on the internet. You don't know what you can trust, you know. Once saved, always saved. It's one of those things. It's in scripture. Once you're saved, you are always saved. But what are you saved from? Are you saved from tribulation? Or are you saved from the second death, the great white throne judgment? I have a theory that those who cannot repent multiple times in these letters, we're going to see that the exhortation means you must repent and come to do, come to believe, come to repent and go do this. Get, like, turn from your ways and repent and remember. And if they don't, there is a consequence for it. And some of those consequences, particularly in, which one was it? Thyatira or Sardis? They will have to go through the great tribulation. And so I wonder if we're guilty of some of these things. If we can't come to repentance, will we be saved from tribulation? Or will we only be saved from the great white throne judgment? I don't know. I'm just thinking about it. I know that I need to constantly examine myself to make sure that I am living a life of repentance. And if you are like examining yourself, be like, I don't really know what I need to repent from. There's a key right there that it's possibly pride might be an issue in your life. And so just living every day in this repentance to try to keep ourselves transformed into the image of Jesus. So anyways, he's telling them to repent. Otherwise, he'll come and remove the lampstand from its place. Yet this you have, it's another commendation. He says, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were, were likely Nicholas of Antioch. He's mentioned in Acts 6. He's one of the, like, we had the 12 apostles, and then the apostles were being so stretched then because the church was growing that they had to appoint deacons, particularly to take care of the widows. There's a man named Nicholas, and he was a Gentile, and he was appointed to be a deacon. And supposedly, this Gentile fell into Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, okay? Gnosticism means that you freely partake in your sin. And you, it's the, th the thought is, I'm free from the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. Therefore, I no longer have to obey the law, and I'm just leaving, leading a life of unrestrained indulgence, which is just not biblical at all we just because jesus fulfilled the laws we may no, no longer be bound under it in the political aspect of and of the sacrifices and 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 just the political laws that they had in leviticus and deuteronomy but we still obey the commandments of god we still have his law written on our heart you know we still have to live this life of holiness um, which is literally what Leviticus means. It's called the book of holiness. Um, anyways, so that's what the thought of, thought of was with the Nicolaitans, is that they lived this life of self-indulgence, probably sexually, but also in other ways as well, I'm sure. But it seems to be sexually, as we'll see when we get to Pergamum. 
Okay. So it says the one who conquers. One of my favorite things that I've discovered in this was a promise to the conqueror. Every letter, we can focus on their criticism. We can focus on their commendations. Every letter makes a promise to the conqueror, which means there are people who do repent. And there are people who do turn from the ways of the criticism that Jesus was giving and they conquer and they overcome it, which is, I feel like should be the main focus on this. There is redemption to be found in every single letter, no matter how guilty the person is. The promise to the conqueror says to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, whether this is like literally a figurative tree of life, or if this is literal in Revelation 22 at the very end. Um, very, very cool in Ephesus. Okay, moving on to the church of Smyrna. This is the persecuted church. It says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, the death and the resurrection. Um, notice we're going to see commendation here, and we're going to see no criticism for the church of Smyrna. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Even though they are physically poor, they are spiritually rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, there's a lot of different ways that you can take this, um, whether they were the Edomites who claim to be Jews and they actually aren't Jews, which is still a battle in Israel today, the tents of Edom that are outside. It's what um, Israel is fighting with constantly right now. Um, I think that this could be, could possibly be a tie into the Hebrew roots movement today, which is part of the teaching. It's very fluid and that not everybody holds to it, but um, a lot of their more um, aggressive teaching is that you have to keep the Torah in order to have salvation, um, which is, is ridiculous because salvation comes from Jesus alone um, and not by our works. And so it could be, it could be a um, foreshadow to what we are seeing with the Hebrew roots movement today. Um, Or it could be the Jews in that time who were not Messianic Jews, meaning that they did not, they do not recognize Jesus as their Messiah says that they are Jews, but are not, um, but a synagogue of Satan, because we know that these Jews were persecuting the Christians and killing them, Paul being one of them. Um, so there's just a couple different ways that you can take it. I take it as you will, um, use the Holy spirit to give you discernment on that. I'm just plugging you in where, where, so you can think about these things. Number verse 10, um, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. There are five crowns mentioned in scripture, promised in scripture. We could have more, but there's only five that I have seen. Um, You have the crown of life, and that's for those who have suffered for his sake. You have the crown of righteousness. That's for those who loved his appearing. You have the crown of glory for those who fed the flock. The crown incorruptible, which is for those who press on steadfastly. And the crown of rejoicing for those who win souls. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more in just a little bit. But 
he will give them, if they are faithful unto death, he will give them the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Um, sorry, I was listening. It was my son downstairs. Um, so this is Smyrna, the persecuted church. My gut says that this is likely the church that is over in the Middle East right now that is suffering a lot of persecution. I don't know if America will ever quite get to that level, but we need to be prepared regardless if you're in America, if you're in Australia, wherever you are listening to this, it is a possibility. But because they are seem to be right there with those who say that they are Jews and are not in a synagogue of Satan. I speculate that this could be the church that's over in the Middle East. Um, Just my speculation and that they will, it says that they have to be faithful unto death. They will face death, not by tribulation, like the great tribulation, the wrath of God, but by the hand of man. Um, Martyrdom, if you will. So, and remember, this is current. This is where we are now in the church age. This is not after the church age. Okay, we're going to move on to Pergamum because we can be here all day. All right, so, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. All right, so this is in reference to Revelation 19. This is judgment Jesus, okay? So chances are we're not going to like what we hear in Pergamum. They're probably not going to have the best, um, the best news, you know? He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Very interesting that his throne seems to be on earth. Hmm. Yet you hold fast to my name, even though that's where they're dwelling, they still hold fast. So this is their commendation. Um, And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Here we come to the criticism. You have... Some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. If you were not here for my Jude study, we talked about the error of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God that was bought by man, um, by Balak, who was the king of Moab, and he basically tricked Israel into falling into the judgment of God so that he could receive a treasure on earth, um, which is just like, who wants treasure on earth when you can have all these treasures in heaven that's eternal? I don't know. It's beyond me. But he did this. He told the king of Moab if he sent women to to Israel that they would commit sexual immorality with them and that they would eat food sacrificed to idols, um, which is a big no-no. Even Paul talks about, you know, you're no longer under the dietary restrictions of the Jews, if you, if, especially for the Gentiles, um, but do not eat food sacrificed to idols. And that's what they did. So that's what um, apparently they were doing in Pergamum as well. So verse 15, he says, So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, um, so we had the deeds that were talked about in Ephesus where they hated their deeds. Now we have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that these that Pergamum is holding to. Some of the people are, remember, living a life of unrestrained indulgence. Therefore, repent. If not, 
I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. It's very interesting that he says, I will come to you soon and war against them, likely being the Nicolaitans. Um, so I don't know if this is, means like you need to step up your game and really, if you aren't holding to this doctrine, you need to hold people accountable to it or what? Um, I'm not sure, but he's going to be warring with them with the sword of his mouth, which is the word of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, to the one who repents and comes back and turns his life around. He says, I will give some hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. This is by far the most elusive gift. Um, that is given to the one who conquers there's and there's, I'll let you kind of look up that on your own. There's a way of judgment that was given where if you pull out a white stone, you're good. If you pull out a black stone, you're under condemnation. And so, and sometimes on that white stone was a name that the person who pulled it out was written on it, that they were to keep to themselves um, as their own type of token type thing. So maybe this is what Paul, uh, not Paul, I'm sorry, Jesus is talking about here in reference to, I'll let you search that out on your own. If that's one of those things that God is calling you to. Okay. Moving on to the church of Thyatira. This church has been wrecking me for months, months. Okay. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the son of God, whose eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet like burnished bronze against, again, this is judgment. Jesus, um, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So they have a commendation works, love, faith, service, patient endurance, and their patience and endurance is greater than all the other ones. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Second time that that's mentioned, big no, no. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I don't know if this was an actual person. There's speculation that this could have been an actual prophetess, or if this is like the spirit of Jezebel, King Ahab's wife, who also used sexual immorality for personal gain. Um, I do know that this Jezebel type spirit is very sexual, but also it seems to be a type of addictive nature to it. And there's one thing that I've been noticing a lot is the spirit of addiction that has been running rampant in our world. I, um, I feel like I've suffered under it myself, which is possibly why this has been so hard on me. Like you can get so addicted to social media. I've really tried to step back from social media and just from trying to set boundaries in relationships that, um, I personally struggle because I don't want to be rude, you know, but there are boundaries that you have to set in relationships and substances. Regardless, there are boundaries that you have to place by God to keep yourself protected from these types of spirits. And that's one thing that this church of Thyatira was not doing. He says, behold, I throw her onto a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her now, this could have been a physical adultery, but also spiritual adultery is very, very 
huge too. Um, idolatry is a type of adultery and sexual immorality. So things that you are holding on greater to than your relationship with God is seen as a sexually immoral thing to do and an adulterous thing to do. Um, multiple times throughout the Old Testament that's used. So that's a pattern that's being set here. Um, so those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart and I will give to each according to your works in Thyatira. Woo! I mean, that is just so scary to know that there is repentance that must be had unless, and if you don't, you will be thrown into great tribulation. And how hard is it to repent when your flesh desires something so greatly and you're, it's a struggle of the mind and the flesh. If you're looking for scripture that really discusses this, Jacob really struggled with his spirit and with the flesh because he was so scared of his brother Esau. He was frightened, but he knew that God was calling him to to see him face to face again. And he wrestled with it so much so that he had a limp for the rest of his life, um, on his hip. So this, I just think is just so incredibly powerful and so important that we constantly search ourselves for repentance, remove anything that is drawing you away from God. And it's gonna, it's gonna hurt. You're not going to want to do it. Delete the apps, delete anything that delete the phone numbers to remove, pluck out your eye before it causes you to sin, because it is better to go into heaven with one eye than to go into hell with both. Same thing with your hand, chop off that hand, whatever it is that's causing you to commit sexual immorality against God in your idolatrous ways, repent so that you don't have to go through this great tribulation. I find this so fascinating and so convicting. And he says, and he says that he searches the mind and heart. Not all of these things are obvious. You know, sometimes our sin finds us out. And if we don't humble ourselves before God, we are humiliated before the world. And that humiliation causes us to humble ourselves before God. And that's one thing that's always like scared me. I never want to be humiliated. So I try to keep myself constantly humbled before God, constantly searching out the things of my heart that are impure. One thing that I used to teach on, I'm going to just spaghetti noodle for just a second, is the temple of God. Our body is a temple of God, right? And if you look at the blueprint of the old temple of God, they had these little closets around the outside of the entire temple, multiple closets. And this is for the Levites. They were to use it to store things used for the temple, lampstands, incense, all the stuff that was used for the temple was to be stored in these closets. You could not get to these closets from the inside of the temple. They were on the outside because that would be an impure thing. Like the temple was to be sealed off, right? These Levites were storing idolatrous things in these closets. And because of that sin, Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, they were not able to receive this righteous type of inheritance and in, um, that for the priesthood. And so I always think about that as our own 
bodies as a temple of God, we have to search out our chambers, our closets to make sure that we are constantly taking inventory of ourselves and cleaning it out so that we can be and remain pure and holy for God. Um, So that's one of those things that repentance, you have to turn from the sin, cut it off, remove it, no matter how bad it hurts. Eternity is a long time and this temporal satisfaction is nothing compared to the eternity that we will have to face with God. Okay, so verse 24, but the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some of the things call, what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. He's coming, isn't he? Notice it says until I come, not after the great tribulation for those post-tribulation people. It's before tribulation. Hold what I have, what you have until I come to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with an earthen pot, or broken into pieces, excuse me, um, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear. These are, this is the authority, this kingship type of authority that likely will be in the millennial period. Um, and so I'll let you kind of search that out on your own for the kings and the priests. Um, I think the crowns really play a role in this, though. All right, let's move on to the Church of Sardis. And to the angel of the Church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. Remember, that's a reference to Isaiah 11, 7, I think. I don't have it in front of me, but I think that's what it was. Um, The seven um, characteristics of the Holy Spirit. Um, The seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive but are dead. So this is the first church we are coming to that has no commendation. Okay. To the world, this church looks great. This church looks like it's being alive and thriving, but it's actually dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. This is a church that is asleep because multiple times he talks about waking up. Strengthen what remains. So there's still something there that remains, right? And is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. This is still the church. Remember that these are stars that are held in the hand of God and the hand of Jesus, right? These are believers, but they're asleep. They have a reputation of being alive, but they're dead. I can't help but think about the parable of the ten virgins who put oil in their lamp. They came. They were waiting for their groom to come and get them, the groom being Jesus, and they fell asleep. And he is saying, wake up. When they woke up and they heard the trumpets of him coming at an hour that they did not know, right? They didn't know when he was coming and he was delayed for a little while. So they went to sleep. 
five virgins didn't keep enough oil in her lamp and in their lamps. And so they had to leave and go get more oil. And he came back and he took the virgins that were prepared and had extra oil in, in their lamp back to the wedding feast. And the other virgins missed it. And they come back and they're knocking on the door. They're not cast out into outer darkness where there's a gnashing of teeth, um, which seems to be hell. But they could not enter into the kingdom where the wedding feast was, which I think is very interesting. Perhaps this is the church that stays asleep and misses the rapture because of it. Because they were not waiting and watching and staying awake and keeping extra oil in their lamp for that time. Verse 4, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Remember, the only reason that their garments remain white is not because of their works. It's not because they kept the Torah. It's because of the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can wash our garments to be white as snow. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name in the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. There are two books that are mentioned in the Bible. You have the book of life. It has the name of every person that's ever existed, born and unborn in this book. And in this book, your name can be blotted out from life itself. That will happen at the great white throne judgment where your name will be erased forever. If you are not his Then there's another book, the book of the life of the lamb. We will mention this. I think it's in Revelation 913. This book does not ever talk about any name being blotted out because this is the book of Jesus. And this book holds the names of those who are his, who recognize him as a Messiah and as the son of God who died and was born again, um, raised again from the death. Um, and so this, those are two different books. One can have your names blotted out. The other one cannot. Once you're in that second book, you are his and you are sealed. Now, sealed from what? Sealed from the great white throne judgment. And I think that's very important to know. Um, repentance is very important when it comes to this. All right, let's move on to Philadelphia. Um, To the angel of the church of Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut, whether this door represents an opportunity, something. I I don't know what this door is, but I think that there's a lot of places we could go with this of what this door means, whether it's to the each individual opportunities that each individual have, whether it has to do with that person's gifts, something that God has placed in before them that nobody else can shut, not even Satan, nobody. I know that you have but little power and yet You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down to your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Very interesting that they're talking about 
the people who think that they are Jews bowing down before this because God has loved this group of people. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. This is the third time we've heard about patient endurance in the church age and in these letters. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. Wait, the Middle East? Israel? America? Nope. The whole world, I will keep you from the hour that is coming on the whole world to those who, who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. The word for soon can also be translated as quickly. I am coming quickly, very suddenly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This is very interesting. This church is being faithful. This church is having patient endurance. God loves this church. And yet someone has the capability of seizing their crown. I've been thinking about this and I've been dwelling on this. You know, we talk about how Satan attacks. He attacks our marriages. He attacks our family. He attacks our finances. What if that's just what it appears on the worldly side of things, but what if in reality, in the spiritual side of things that we have crowns that he's trying to seize. And when we fall and when we stumble and we are unrepentant, he's able to seize our crowns. When we become weak in the flesh and we are no longer patiently enduring whatever God has set before us, whatever trial we're facing, it sounds like our crowns can be seized. I find this so very interesting that there is something so much bigger happening eternally than what we even realize in this world. And so I think that the key to this is constantly examining ourselves and repenting and being patient in our endurance for whatever we are facing, whether it's politically or spiritually or mentally to endure so that no one may seize the, our crowns. Um, very interesting. I wonder which crown this is referring to. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. If you don't know anything about God's temple in the Old Testament, there are two pillars. One was named strength and the other one conquer, I think. Anyways, it was not uncommon for pillars to have names, particularly in the temple of God. And so he's saying that I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Only one other person that I'm aware of in the new Testament was called a pillar to the church. And that was Peter. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my new name. You want to talk about a church that he loves Look at how many my's is in there. It's his. He loves this church. They will be a t pillar and ha have a name written on it of my God and the name of my city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. You know, in Revelation 19, when Jesus is coming back, excuse me, hope you can't hear too much of me flipping to find that. Um, it talks about the one sitting on the white horse is faithful and true. And it says, 
on his robe in verse 16 and on his thigh he has a name written on it king of kings and lord of lords um there is a new name in here also in his verse 12 it says his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. I wonder if this is the new name that he will give them. Very interesting. Okay. Very beautiful. Very, very beautiful to just dwell on this truth. Okay, let's um, move on to our last church, Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true. Remember, we just talked about that faithful and true the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. Again, this church does not receive any commendation. Their works is that they are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You know, one of the things I learned about this a long time ago is that um, when someone was sick, and they needed to vomit, they would drink lukewarm water as a way to induce vomiting because it is so repulsive because it's not hot and it's not cold. It's just absolutely repulsive to the body. Um, Oh my goodness, I would never want to be considered this. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. If that's not America right now, out of all, probably all the continents, I mean, there's a lot of them probably guilty of this too, but how much we feel like we need nothing because we are so wealthy. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me. Now this is all very spiritual right here. Gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Invest in his treasures in heaven not treasures on earth, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Remember the white garments is what he gives us when we wash ourselves with his blood of the sacrifice for our sins and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see this in particular was insulting to Laodicea because they were rich because they had an an embalming type oil that they would put on the eyes. It was a balm and it was a very expensive balm. It was very beneficial. And he's basically saying here, that is nothing compared to the balm that I can give you. Uh, Salve to anoint your eyes so that you may actually see. I always think about first Kings chapter six, where, um, Elisha was there and his, he had a servant with him and his servant was freaking out because the they were surrounded by enemies and he's like looking around and he's like look at look at everybody they're out here what are we going to do what are we going to do and Elisha's like lord just let him see and when he did that he saw spiritually that they were surrounded even greater by chariots of fire of for angelic beings that literally wiped out everybody else it was really it's a really cool thing how much we have to actually see what's going on behind the scenes God give us eyes to see he says to those whom I love now 
this is not all of Laodicea. Not all of Laodicea was lukewarm. There are some that he loved in there. He says, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what he says to the churches. How cool is that? That for a group of people, the church that was ruled by the people that was so lukewarm that they did nothing zealously for God or against God, they have a chance to conquer and repent. And if they do, they get to sit with Jesus on his throne. Now, whether this is in reference to the elders and the thrones that they're sitting on and the crowns that they're casting before them, we'll get into that next week and my speculation on who the elders are. What that means, I don't know, but there is a promise to the conqueror in every one of these letters. And I think, honestly, all of these churches, we have a lot of their commendations and we have a lot of their criticisms today. I think a lot of us have abandoned our first love and we get so focused on doctrine. We get so focused on other things that we neglect our love that we had with God in the first place that set us on fire to really start digging for him. I think a lot of people live a life of self-indulgence like the Pergamums do. I think that they think that they grace is a license to sin and that God will just forgive them. I think that that's a very dangerous way to play because first off, are you even his if you want to live that way? And if you are his and you choose to live this way, if you don't repent, he's going to come and make war with you. Like, I don't want that to happen to anybody. And, you know, it could be that all of these churches, if they can't repent, they will have to go through tribulation because it doesn't say once you're saved that you're saved from the time of tribulation. Perhaps if you can't come to repentance, they will have to go through this tribulation. So abandoning your first love, you know, living a life of self-indulgence, living a life of sexual immorality with Jezebel and having idolatry in your heart, and then having dead works and your works not being completed by God and living a life of just, you know, so being so lukewarm and just not living any kind of life zealously and just getting up every day, going to work, going, going to church on Sundays, but you're not actually doing anything for his kingdom. You're not actually spending any time in prayer. You're not reading his word. You're not, there's no relationship there. He's on the outside of that door. He's saying, I'm knocking at this door. Let me in so that I can eat with you, have community with you, have fellowship with you. This is such a huge, huge part of our church today where it's convicting, isn't it? It's so convicting. We should constantly be self-assessing ourselves so that we can come to repentance and we can live the life that Jesus had for us. And then the promise to the conquerors, go to slide five and look through all these promises to the conquerors to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God, to not be hurt by the second judgment, to be given hidden manna and to have a white stone with a note, with a name written on that nobody knows to have authority over the nations, to get 
the morning star, which is Jesus himself, a reference to Jesus himself, to be clothed in white garments, to be a pillar in the temple of God and have the name of God and the name of his city and his own new name given to us and to sit with him on his throne. Can you imagine It's overwhelming to think that we would be worthy of any of this. And yet, if we live this life of repentance, we are worthy of this. Father God, I just come before you for each and every heart that's listening to this. God, it's just so powerful listening to your word and how you give us promises. For if we turn and we turn to you, And we turn from our sin and we turn from our indulgences and we turn from everything that is distracting us from you. And we have the love that we once had for you. And we live our lives strictly for you and you alone. These promises are just overwhelming to think that we could even be worthy of it. And yet you tell us that we are. And the only reason that we are is through the power of of your Holy Spirit and through the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf so that we can have this type of relationship with you. God, I love you and I praise you and I thank you for that. God, help each hearer come to this truth, to come to this realization so that they can have this type of relationship with you and so that they may not have to suffer any type of judgment from you. And they may be spared from the great white throne judgment, but then they may also receive everything that you would have given to them eternally, whether it's in this life or in life eternal. Help them to turn to you, God, so that they can honor you and glorify your name and then them themselves be glorified in that honor and in that glory. Father, we love you and we praise you. We worship you in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you if you have stuck through this whole thing. I thank you for sticking by. Next week, we are going to study Revelation 4 and 5. And I cannot promise that I won't cry when we get to Revelation 5. But y'all, y'all, it is so powerful. I'm so excited. This is one of my favorite sections is Revelation 5. And I want you to study that. And I also want you to go through the book of Ruth. I want you to read it with your spouse this week. Um, Read it aloud, read it, have it read to you, read it like it's just this beautiful love story. Think about these questions. Who are the elders standing before the throne in Revelation 4 and 5? Who are these four living creatures? What is the scroll that is sealed? And why is the lamb the only one that's worthy to open it? As you go through Ruth, What is Boaz doing at the end of it? Once he realizes that he wants to marry Ruth, there is a legal transaction that must take place as a kinsman redeemer. Something is happening here. And until we realize what's happening with Boaz as a kinsman redeemer, we cannot understand why the lamb is the only one worthy to open the seals of the scroll. Thank you for sticking by with me, guys. Examine yourselves. Contend for the faith. Endure patiently. I love you guys so much, and I will see you next week.